Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we jump into our discussion today, just want to throw out, we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, or if not, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Along those lines, just want to give a shout out, shout out rather to A. Wiles BWO for a super nice and really touching review that they left for us on iTunes really made our day when we saw that. So I just wanted to thank you. It was very clever and, and creative. So again, shouts out to A. Wiles BWO for the nice review on iTunes. But today, Taylor and I are going to be looking at a couple of pieces, one from Marx, the fragment on machines from the Grandrisa and machine and structure from Felix Guattari. So this is like a perfect little solo episode for Taylor and I to dive into. So Taylor, do you have any thoughts about why you suggested this reading or this pairing, maybe to start us off? I think that what's interesting about this pairing and whether or not we do it justice is completely up for grabs. This is just kind of a, I think this was an excuse, I think, for us to talk about Guattari in a way that emphasizes his interest in Marxism, communism more broadly, you know, as we kind of discussed yesterday with Varn over at Varn Vlog, you know, I'll just kind of reproduce a little bit here, you know, Guattari, even if it's, if he's remembered as a kind of militant and uh, he was involved in all sorts of different groups. And uh, a lot of times the emphasis gets put on either his, you know, analytic capabilities, right? He's thought of as a as an analyst, and that's what he brings to the Deleuze and Guattari assemblage, or he's kind of thought of in terms of his interest in challenging the dominance of the signifier and Caesarian linguistics, Lacanian psychoanalysis, whatever. So he's kind of, you know, thought of as, as an atypical analyst or an atypical linguist. And I think that that it, it pays dividends to also focus and contemplate on his interest in revolutionary politics, Marxism in general, and sort of suss out at least some of the those aspects, because I think that that it's a de- it's it's a detriment to his to his analytic specialty if we kind of leave some of that other stuff in the background. It is interesting. I don't. This might be skipping ahead a little bit. No, that's fine. That's, is, that's great. I think it's real compelling just to kind of draw this or make this comparison or like maybe to historicize or like contextualize Guattari is that the way that, and we'll have to draw from the passage itself. Maybe I should read that, but I'll comment first on how the way that Marx describes the laborer 
as being on the periphery of the sort of machinic process of production. Whenever machinery, you know, technical machines, we should say specifically, which is not what Guattari limits his conception of machines to, but certainly you can see the what he's drawing from in terms of Marx. So for Marx, the worker is on the periphery of the machine in a similar way that the subject is on the periphery of the desiring machine for Deleuze and Guattari. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of connection. There's this displacement of the subject, whether it be the worker or you know, the individual, if you want to speak broadly. We see this very much in Deleuze and Guattari up front in the first chapter when they go into the conjunctive synthesis, right? The when they talk about sort of Nietzsche's every name in history is I, but it's not as though he's kind of saying a universal solipsism or a sort of universal identification with humanity all at once, as though it were this kind of swelling of the ego. It's in fact, as they say, a kind of sweeping of the arc of subjectivity throughout these, we could say throughout these, these kinds of almost this delirious identification, but it's a displacement. It's a decentering in a certain sense, right? Where the eye would have no center or no subjective fullness, kind of like what we discussed with Saul Newman in terms of uh, Sterner's creative nothing, right? That kind of void at the heart of right, the Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. And good catch. And not just in anti-Oedipus. I mean, this was written in 72. So this is inspired by uh, machine and structure. Sorry, Guattari's machine and structure was written in 72. And is so it's, it's at the height of his initial collaborations with Deleuze as the same year Anti-Oedipus was published. And he does say on the second page, the unconscious subject as such will be on the side, the same side as the machine, or better perhaps alongside the machine. There is no break in the machine itself, the breach is on either side of it. So I think that that's important to think of the subject as alongside, or, or even as he says, and kind of as Marx says too, as a residue of machines. And what I think Guattari means by this, because you brought up that Guattari is thinking in terms of machines as Mark does, but further generalizing it to not just be technical machines or the sort of automated system of machinery as Marx defines it. Because right. for Marx, when machinery takes its kind of central role as fixed capital and appropriates living labor, right? Labor, the laborer uh, becomes adjacent, right? It's, he says it in sort of artisanal processes with when the laborer was working directly with his hands, with implements that sort of augmented his organism. That's when the laborer has a sort of independence and has a kind of virtuosity Whereas with the rise of automated systems of machinery, it's, it's machines that become kind of the organism, the active organism. They are the right. ones that become the virtuosos. And, and human labor is kind of to make sure that the process continues. Right. Yeah, right? Exactly. So the, process exactly. isn't, the process isn't interrupted because it's right. precisely that that would diminish the surplus value, or one of the things that would diminish the surplus value is discontinuities in the in the process. So for, for Marx himself, he says it in several different ways, but he also thinks of the, the worker as becoming just a kind of adjacent part of the process. He calls about them as a supervisors and watchmen of over the machines. And Deleuze and Guattari have a kind of, they say something very Marxist in this sense, because they talk about 
humans as the sort of eternal or universal custodians of the machines of the cosmos. This custodianship of machines, I think, is is something that is interesting. That's kind of a beatific, beautiful side of framing it and very optimistic. There is the other side whereby Guattari thinks that as machines increasingly at a rapid rate replace themselves, this kind of leaves no self-security for laborers. The labor process or the, the, the skill learning process has to start from scratch each time, which he kind of considers to be the how desire itself functions, right? Desire machines work by breaking down. But it's the point, I guess, that I wanted to wrap this little aside up with is what Guattari also sees, and Marx too, I think, is how machines in their replacement and in their perfecting of the automated system leave less leave less and less of a residue for the appendages, if we will, of labor, where they can appropriate more and more of the laborer's inputs, which Guattari kind of has this interesting scenario of, you know, the laborer is pressing either a red button or a black button. And ideally, with quote unquote, technological progress, even that button pressing could be integrated, right, by by the machine. And I think that this is why Marx is kind of like, saying it makes sense why the workers would what does he say he says uh he says thus the specific mode of working here appears directly as becoming transferred from the worker to capital in the form of the machine and his own labor capacity devalued thereby hence the workers struggle against machinery which the prototype being blooditism right right, and right. sabo sabotage etc sabotage yeah i got the impression that what Marx was saying in terms of fixed capital is that it undermines surplus extraction because I don't understand the exact mechanics of the like algorithm, but something about the machine undermines the ability to, it's only through live, like actual living labor that surplus can be extracted is what seemed, that's kind of how it came across to me when I read, which I think is, is so- kind of interesting. Uh-huh. Let me see if I can say this in the way I understand it. And again, I don't claim to be an expert on Marx. I think this is part of the fun of our explorations. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, caveat auditor, listener it's, beware. It, it's I, almost I be... like here, let me, me let me yeah, take it please. further. So, and this is something that's not spoken about by either one of them that much. Okay. Is the angle of dead labor surplus can't be abstracted from the machines because the machines are already comprised of dead labor, which has already had its surplus value extracted. So I think of dead labor in the sense of all of the, you know, the technical knowledge, et cetera, all the physical labor, there's a whole signifying chain or productive chain a process that, went into machinery. that, that crystallizes in the, yeah. in the formation of the machine. So perhaps that is the mechanism that that's why it's fixed capital because it can't be abstracted and stationary capital can't produce surplus the way that it has to be in motion, right? To go back a bit to nail, yeah. capital has to circulate. It can't just be tied up in these fixed That's right. entities or That's right. partial objects or whatever the fuck you want to call them. Like I think that the one thing I would slightly amend or add is that fixed capital can only produce surplus value in, in being consumed, right? Which is being used up, as he kind of puts it. Machines wear down, parts have to be replaced. Right. It's in that process. That's why I think for him, 
insofar as capital relates to itself, fixed capital in the form of machinery is its is its proper form. But insofar as capital has relations outside itself, it's circulating capital that is its proper form. And this is kind of right, right. Yeah, I think Guattari interesting says this too, or maybe I'm maybe it's maybe, maybe he maybe he glosses over it in the uh, in this essay or elsewhere. I made but note I, of it. I know that I did. Um, yeah. So I think that your your point earlier, though, if I'm getting if I'm listening correctly, is the so-called tendency of the rate of profit to fall, which there are always these kind of tendencies yeah. to counterbalance them and make up for it. But one of the factors in that tendency is the fact that as the value, as as the value or use value of fixed capital rises, the relation between surplus value and and fixed capital value becomes smaller. If that makes sense, right? So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Of- okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see what you're. That's good. Yeah, it's funny because I've never thought of the lowering, you know, rate of profit. It's always like you always hear this couched in terms of globalization. So there's like there's less labor markets to abstract or you know to. And that's that's a big that's a big part of it too. Extract surplus labor fund, but yeah, that's a good that's a good point about how fixed capital sort of is recreating the same process. Right in its reproduction of value, I think that that's where. As its value rises, as fixed capital value rises, the ratio diminishes, right? It, it, yeah, it, yeah. It becomes less. And I think that, that part of what, uh, what Marx is also kind of saying is that it's the very fact that circulating capital is indifferent to its forms, right? The product doesn't matter as long as it's making yeah. profit, as long as it's making surplus value, it doesn't matter. Whereas you know, fixed capital machinery is at least in the in the imperfect form it still exists today. It has to be calibrated to create certain services, products, whatever, right? So it, it has to take on a concrete orientation and purpose. Whereas the products, that's on the side of fixed capital, but I mean, on that's the almost side of like circulating is, capital, it doesn't matter what the products are. Is that like MCM kind of relation? Would you say? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but here, it's not just about money making commodities making money it's the fact that if the m is machinery in this analysis yeah, yeah. In, in this equation it's the fact that machines create a specific commodity which then can be used to create surplus value that then could create more machines or that could reorient the machines and and calibrate them differently to create different products but in any case the the products don't matter what they are and yet the machines until we can get sort of a universal machine. I know there are some, we can think of like laser, or not laser, 3D printing that could right, yeah, that could kind of eventually short circuit this and, you know, a, a general purpose machine to create any product. It's theoretically possible right. and imaginable, especially on these broad mass scales, you know, machineries, machinery is tailored to do a, a specific function, produce specific products even though the products don't, their identities don't matter, so to speak, right? Like it, signifiers, sort of, right? Like that's kind of the, the like structure yeah. is sort of similar. Money is a signifier or like- The general equivalent, value. right? Yeah, the yeah, general exactly. equivalent. I think that that's where- General Guattari, equivalency of language, right? To switch over to, to Guattari for a second. I mean, this can be seen in the in the sense of, of structure, whereby structure is, you know, it's composed of at least two series- Obviously, signifier signified being the most prominent example of this, and they come together. And 
so structure is sort of obviously it's kind of indifferent to the the representations right. the 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 play of the signifiers amongst themselves or their their sort of you know value only being related in their difference from each other in re- in this relational chain as you put it i want to read just a brief passage from marx Please. that goes to this too cuz he says specifically that machinery enters only where labor capacity is on hand in masses one connection i make to this too relative to at least the technical machines that Marx is specifically referring to is that there's like a dialectical relation or an inverse relationship between, I guess, the number of commodities that can be produced and their price. So it's like the machine will allow you to produce more and more of the commodity. Consequently, as you produce more and more, then the price of that commodity drops over time, which also means that the amount of surplus available to be abstracted from the production of the commodity also decreases, which goes back again to the following rate of production that you astutely pointed out. So I think that's just interesting. And to concretize that, you think of something that is things that can't have a value abstracted from them because they're so abundant would be air, right? I get what you're saying that this is kind of what Nail was getting at in our discussion with him when he was kind of saying, Marx is not pro-value i.e. exchange value, right? He's not, there's something insidious and dangerous in finding values everywhere as though they were natural. That's a good point. Uh, which again, value being distinct from use value as, as Marx is talking about it here. This is part of capitalism's monstrosity, if you will. The thing, as Deleuze and Guattari say, the kind of monstrous thing that is wanting to create values where where previously there were none based on these, you know, whether we call it, I will just say, just leaving that, that line of thought aside, I was thinking about when you said the commodification of air, I was thinking about, um, there's some funny scenes in, in Spaceballs, right? Where, yeah, Perrier, the, Perrier, the, 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 the Perrier, right? The, if we get off this, this planet at some point, you can imagine the value of air if we're still sort of in this commodity regime, the value of air would rise significantly. Now, where this does fall apart, but this goes back to nail a little bit, is the way that, but I think it's important to just point out, I mean, broadly would be, we export our pollution to the periphery, right? We export all of our, and this goes back to really, you know, to go thermodynamic to some degree, it's like, it's almost as if all systems have to offload their internal entropy out into the world. Like you have to displace your internal, your internal entropy faster than the external entropy is attacking you. Like there's a, there's that balance. There's the like libidinal band or inverse relation there in terms of entropy. Yeah. It's interesting that not all the waste is exported to the periphery, but as a general tendency, there is right. that there's almost like a even an analytic psychoanalytic aspect to this where, where the abject, right? When right, you know the you anus know, being the first organ right, privatized, that kind of similar. There's some sort of internal horror and in, 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 at the abject, at the at the shit that leaves our, our bowels, and it has to be sort of it has to be the most alienated and disavowed, destroyed. yeah. Disavowed, yeah. I think that um the disavowal of the real costs of what we've built. I was thinking about how in Georgia, the way that the weather works, a lot of the pollution from 
from like power plants. When I was in Millersville, we had, I got to visit the Georgia power plant, which was partly coal based and partly hydroelectric, a little dam set up around it. But the, the smoke pollution, the air pollution was basically drift towards Alabama and vice versa. States kind of trade each other's in a certain sense. They kind of, as you were mentioning, this this offloading. I mean, this is principle to capitalism, right? It's externalities. It's it has to push, and this goes back to nail too, because of the appropriation of everything. It has to offload the yeah, the externalities, the external costs of its own like it has to exclude to be able to generate value because it can't calculate the incalculable. With industrial capitalism, the spasmodic evolution of machinery keeps cutting across the existing hierarchy of skills. So like, I think that this is where he says, every new discovery in the sphere of scientific research, for example, moves across the structural field of theory like a war machine, upsetting and rearranging everything so as to change it radically. Even the researcher is at the mercy of this process. His discoveries extend far beyond himself, bringing in their train whole new branches of researchers and totally redesigning the tree of scientific and technological implications. Even when a discovery is called by its author's name, the result, far from personalizing him, tends to be to turn his proper name to a common noun. This question is whether the effacing of the individual is something that will spread to other forms of production as well. You know, and since we're talking about machinery and we're talking about- What about the AI bot that produces the art? Yeah, lovingly called Dolly, (laughs) which is- like the sheep. Remember the first sheep that was it's like was the named sheep, Dolly. and it's also like the like the surrealist artist, right? There's a, a way in which those two proper nouns now become this kind of impersonal, asubjective, Ooh, yeah, 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 art machine that is kind of able to compute design across the spectrum of its sort of potentially unlimited databases and uh, create art that is what I think of as, you know, you can call it machinic art. There's a sense in which it's, it's a, one of its uncanny principles is the uncanny Valley that a lot of the the images take on. And, you know, just to remind the listeners, uncanny Valley is kind of, there's this way in which certain images of faces, for example, human faces are so close and yet not quite recognizable as human that there's something it's like the inhuman at the heart of the human so to speak maybe i'm not saying this oh that's good i like i like inhuman at the heart of the human that's a yeah i mean this is kind of the uncanny right the uncanny is the unheimlich right it's it's unhomely where it's it's not that it's it's the farthest away from home it's like it's like the the ghosts that haunt the home so to speak freud has this example of He's working late in his office and he's writing and it's dark and he's starting to fall asleep and he he jolts awake and and sees he sees this human form in the in the window and he freaks out and realizes it's his own it's his own reflection. And this gets some kind of thinking about the uncanny and thinking about this is why I think dolls are creepy right and puppets certain puppets are kind of creepy clowns are are creepy for this reason too right there's this like de-territorialization of the face in ways that can be uncanny so dolly works in that that way too 
And the other thing I was thinking of with this is since we're talking about machinery and the automated system of machinery that, as Marx notes, makes the worker, the labor process, like appropriates it, makes it dependent on on it is, um, and this notion of the proper name becoming a common name is Taylorism, right? Which... (laughs) Which is usually related to like Fordism and the assembly right, line right. and all these things, but it's, it's kind of Taylorism is, is kind of this almost fascistic, but hyper capitalist streamlining of processes and ways of maximizing value, maximizing outputs by hierarchizing and organizing inputs. There is a sense in which Taylorism is just a kind of perfecting of the logic that Marx sees at the heart of implementing automated systems of machinery. No wasted movement, right? No wasted, uh, the sort of reduction of waste, including the sort of maximizing of the potentialities of, of even the residue that we happen to be in our, in our capacities as servicers and, and, and watchmen of the machines, right? There's the sort of maximizing effectiveness of all expenditure. Do you ever think about this as far as like, I kind of go back to, again, with like fixed capital and dead labor and almost to the, to the potlatch where there was the gifts were animated with the spirits of the, and you had to like exchange those. Come on most, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost feel like the machines are dead labor for me. Like, I think that is a kind of interesting, you know, something like a computer, you know, I don't know if you've heard these like demons being tracked in the like trapped in circuitry etc circuit boards i don't know there's something weird there like in a kind of occult realm of spirits inhabiting machines and dead labor mark says this turn of phrase when trying to find it where he mentions i almost wonder too if marx is too optimistic in this way that basically this falling rate of profit from the machinic would like short circuit capitalism eventually on its on its own it feels like the virtual you know to go to baudrillard like this is where perhaps this opens up a whole new terrain for capital to extract a surplus because it's not limited by physical physical time and space this is where it jumps those limitations well we should definitely we should go to the the optimistic side of marx's appraisal specifically in the discussion of free time yeah, yeah. But, but before we do that, I wanted to bring up the fact that I mentioned earlier about how the artisan in the guilds, whatever, the craftsman working with implements versus the machine, which becomes the virtuoso. He says, uh, where do you draw the distinction between where does a implement or a tool become a machine? Like, what's that? Well, this is what, what's, what's interesting about this analysis, I, just to broaden it, it makes me think of Simondon when he's talking about woodworkers, right? And he's talking about how form and matter in the Aristotelian sense and the hylomorphic model have never really been as separate as this metaphysics wants to make it. Right. Things aren't never that simple. And he gives the idea of like a paring knife and a woodworker. And the paring knife is a very sensitive tool because what he finds is that within the wood itself, within the various different types of wood, there are different grains and different sort of forms already laden within the matter. And what the woodworker does specifically with a paring knife, which is a very 
as I said, it's a sensitive tool. One goes with or against the grain in order to produce the effects one wishes. So there is a sense in which one sort of works around the knots. One actually gets in tune with the sort of pre, pre-given forms within the wood's own physiological structures. But if you think of a sort of an intermediate type of woodworking tool, which is partly on the side of machining, uh, machinery as Marx defines it, but not fully automated, like the lathe, the lathe can't respect the grain of the wood in the same way, right? The lathe is going to be sort of, you know, going against or, or with the grain. And so certain woods are not appropriate for lathes. There are certain woods that it could be more appropriate for, but other woods would have their sort of pre-established forms completely ignored and disregarded in a way that would sort of sort of do an injustice to it. So I think that that's part of this automation that we lose that autonomy and sensitivity of the artisan that works by hand. And this is why he says, he says, in no way does the machine appear as the individual's workers means of labor. It's distinguishing characteristic. It's not in the least as with the means of labor to transmit the workers activities, the object, which I was just talking about. Right, right. Yeah. This activity rather is posited in such a way that it merely transmits the machine's work, the machine's action onto the raw material, supervises it and guards against interruptions, which again is the custodianship. Not as with the instrument, which the worker animates and makes into his organ with his skill and strength and whose handling therefore depends on his virtuosity. Rather, it is the machine which possesses skill and strength in place of the worker is itself the virtuoso with a soul of its own and the mechanical laws acting through it. I wanted to read that section because specifically of this notion that Marx is kind of hinting at, which I think is very prescient and even more important for today with the virtual, as you were talking about, the fact that that Marx is thinking of the machine and machinery as becoming the virtuoso and having a kind of soul of its own, its own immobile motor or its own prime mover, if you will, its own, I don't want to call it subjectivity, right? But its own conservation of movement, because that's kind of, if we want to take Marx here, literally, when he uses this word soul, that's kind of how Aristotle thinks of soul, right? Is that which is, in principle, a, a sort of mobile force. Whatever moves, so to speak, can be said to have a certain, a certain aspect of soul. Like circulating capital. Yeah. Soul then. But even here with fixed capital, the, the movement, even if it's on the spot. Inter- right. It's still movement. Yeah. I guess it may be unmoved movement or something like that, right? In this yeah. weirdly Aristotelian But way see, I still think that I can't get over this idea that machines are dead labor. That's why they have, or that's how they have a soul. It's almost like Marx is saying it's undead labor or it's zombie labor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like they're trapped in a hell, the souls of all the producers of all the knowledge and the physical commodities, et cetera. That when it's like they're trapped in this, like, like the phantom zone or some shit. I think, what, I think, again, to bring in Simone Don, it's important to understand the notion of dead labor, I think, as a metaphor. And it may be not even the best metaphor because Marx has better ones when, as you use the term itself, and Marx uses it a lot, is this notion of a crystallization. And what's important is even if the crystal may be inorganic, as long as it's submerged in this mother liquid and there is no other external force sort of stopping it, it's more alive than dead, if you will, because it continues to individuate on its edges. Even if it's inorganic and wouldn't qualify as life as we think of it, 
it still has this, you could call it zombie-like to anthropomorphize it, but it still has this means of individuating and crystallizing. It doesn't crystallize once and for all without some sort of external force. Internally, it is still, you know, it is still sort of generating and individuating on its edges. So I think of that is a little bit better, if you will, than dead labor. It is crystallized, crystallizing labor. It's still, it's still got movement. It still has, it still produces. But I understand what is going on with dead labor because it is about a a kind of accumulation of all these different forces, technical, scientific, physical, right? Yeah, but all I think that we shit think it crystallizes in the machine. Yeah. If we think of it more as a crystal, then that gets to the the rough analogy or metaphor yeah. of this undead right. okay. labor, right? But we did want to talk about Marx's optimism. And one of the places that we were discussing together, we sort of started to touch on was the creation of a large quantity of disposable time apart from necessary labor time, right? I think that this is where there is some sort of positive aspect of Marx. It may be worth reading the passage more in full if you want. Forces of production and social relations, two different sides of the development of the social individual, appear to capital as mere means and are merely means for it to produce on its limited foundation. In fact, however, they are the material conditions to blow this foundation sky high. Truly wealthy a nation when the working day is six rather than 12 hours. Wealth is not command over surplus labor time, real wealth, but rather disposable time outside that needed in direct production for every individual and the whole society. So AKA communism is free time and nothing else. Boom, podcast over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he continues this reflection on the next page and I'll read this quote and then we can kind of discuss it some. The creation of a large quantity of disposable time apart from necessary labor time for society generally and each of its members, i.e. room for the development of the individual's full productive forces, hence those of society also, this creation of not labor time appears in the stage of capital as of all earlier ones, as not labor time, free time for a few. What capital adds is that it increases the surplus labor time of the mass by all the means of art and science because its wealth consists directly in the appropriation of surplus labor time. Since value directly is its purpose, not use value. It is thus, despite itself, instrumental in creating the means of social disposable time in order to reduce labor time for the whole society to a diminishing minimum and thus to free everyone's time for their own development. But its tendency, as always, on the one side is to create disposable time while on the other to convert it into surplus labor. If it succeeds too well at the first, then it suffers from surplus production, and then necessary labor is interrupted because no surplus labor can be realized by capital. The more this contradiction develops, the more does it become evident that the growth of the forces of production can no longer be bound up with the appropriation of alien labor, but that the mass of workers must themselves appropriate their own surplus labor. Once they have done so, and disposable time thereby ceases to have an antithetical existence, Then on one side, necessary labor time will be measured by the needs of the social individual. And on the other, the development of the power of social production will grow so rapidly that even though production is now calculated for the wealth of all, disposable time will grow for all. For real wealth is the developed productive power of all individuals. The measure of wealth is then not any longer in any way labor time, but rather disposable labor time. And I could go on, but I think that this is where, as you said, 
communism, free time, and nothing else, that there are the seeds of this are found in Marx's analyses. And I think that the I think that this goes back to how we discussed yesterday that Guattari analyzes certain failures of one state socialism in its compromise with with say US you know the US can capitalize on on sort of food crises even in communist nations and offload its surplus production and find a market for it and so i think that what marx is trying to see in the acceleration of this antagonism of this antithesis of this contradiction between the creation of disposable time and the counterbalance of converting it into surplus labor. I think that this is part of what he sees as perhaps the positive dialectic of machinery and what machinery or industrial capital allows. But that's only one side of the story too. I think that this is where Guattari is important because for him, this is why he insists upon a kind of international workers movement that is not sort of holed up into these different regionalisms and nationalisms, because if that happens, then there is a kind of getting trapped within the pre within structures that are supposedly pre-given like the state. Right. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes to anti-Oedipus, right? Because of the like sort of identity, like I am an American, et cetera. There's a crystallization of the individual that, I don't know, binds desire up. There's a sort of Oedipal identification of with the fatherland, et cetera. With the fatherland, with the the master race, with the, it reminds me of the conservative line that, you know, it's, we're all sort of temporarily. Embarrassed millionaires? Yeah, something like that, right? There's a way in which it's phrased that we all, we all aspire to being bourgeois or to being. We all aspire to have access to unlimited jouissance, kind of like the primal father, for example. As though we aren't all castrated. <laughs> we aspire to, to this fullness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe and... that's, that's where the death drive comes into play. I wanted to get into this yesterday, too, with Varn a little bit about how the death drive and like the repression of death in our society is what creates this tremendous anxiety towards death. Yeah. And for Guattari, the death drive can easily be offloaded, to speak of the waste that we did earlier, the pollution can easily be offloaded either onto other nations, right? We military industrial complex in group fantasy, but it could also be offloaded onto potentially all forms of others, all forms of minorities and minoritarian processes and processes of scapegoats that allow for an outlet of that aggressivity. Right, right. And I think that for, but for Guattari, what, what's important about the death drive is to, and for revolutionary organizations is to channel it in an institutional machine that would locate the archaisms that prevent capitalism from collapsing and thereby for communism to rise. I kind of see this notion of an institutional death drive, which is like, you know, we always quote this, it's the, the Nietzsche quote, um, a state's armies, church, yeah. states armies, churches, which these dogs wants to die. And Guattari thinks that what is needed is instead of warding off perpetually the collapse of empire or integrated world capitalism or whatever, which is a lot of the its functionaries are, are performing, it's to be able to channel that death drive into institutions collectively, because obviously it would have to be collectively and, and thereby allow them to become metastable and eventually eliminable 
right? You know, I just had this idea, but you know, there's not a lot of difference at the end of the day between what the ancient Egyptians were doing and what we're doing in a sense related to death, because like the whole society is organized for the towards the immortality of the Pharaoh God, right? Of the few, yes. Of the or the one, the transcendent father who has access to full jouissance. Just like the despot, it's a sort of recapitulation to this this transcendent phallus or whatever. Yeah, I think that, that that's has why... to be broken. I think mm-hmm. like that's we're producing all this surplus to give the despot eternal life, right? To sort of to repress death, and in so doing, we believe that we can re- sort of repress our own little deaths and live on in this. You know what I mean? As as this sort of unconscious motivation behind it. But it's good. That's kind of it's, like half ass cup. I don't know if that makes any no, sense. No, no, it's it's what he talks about the myth of the good worker. You know, if we're if we're good little workers, good little soldiers, we live on in the institution. I or the why, machines. Right. The, like, this is why he contrasts or analogizes the hero cults, right? The Greek hero cults, which is a kind of worship of the dead and of the the great man above and beyond the little people he sees a new kind of hero cult in, in this like this cult of the machine which i think he talks about in anti-oedipus in the terms of like a kind of conservative economic technocracy as though there were this unlimited potential for technology to always be beneficial for us that's the tightrope right is that on one side is falling into this optimistic te- technocratic yeah yeah semi totalitarian or fully totalitarian society which is is ironized by uh, Huxley in something like Brave New World or this counter tendency to think of the individual or the human subject as always at odds with machines whether that be ludditeism or sabotage or fetishizing a dystopia yeah instead of valorizing it or fetishizing it as this negative image i think that that's the tightrope for guatrice right. yeah it's actually kind of ironic because i think reading anti-oedipus has made me more skeptical of technology than i was before like i think i had a lot more of a neutral or perhaps even positive view of technology <laughs> before reading anti-oedipus which is kind of funny and this goes to the machinic bureaucracy shit that terrifies me that i've been talking about over you know the last several podcasts i don't know that inhuman element being trapped in these inhuman algorithms is terrifying it's almost like a fucking purgatory <laughs> that someone could be left in that is definitely possible and at the same time there are as Ivan Illich talks about there are tools for conviviality, and we discussed this with Saul Newman. I think that doesn't necessarily always have to be, always have to treat the machine with suspicion. Yeah, I think that the fact that you know our connections, as we talk about often, our connections were made purely virtually through in happenstance, and and you know it was serendipity. Quattro too, in 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 machine. Yeah, because I guess that's right. You, you know. I don't know this for a hundred percent fact, but it may very well have been the Deleuze bot that, that led to you and I exactly getting together. If that is true, and it and there's there's a not zero chance it it, it was true, <laughs> then that kind of gives the lie to this yeah, personal yeah. dimension. Because I think that not everything in human has to be uh, right. has to be seen as as horrific or uncanny. You know, Guattari is 
is always thinking about the sort of the a signifying you know potential the the impersonal the a subjective the a signifying there are senses in which those have certain efficacies that don't have to be anti-human or but there are there are fascisms that persist it's scat looking at the what was it the fuck was the name of that oh yeah everybody wants to be a fascist he says that the way that you know fascism is scattered just like desire is scattered until it crystallizes into these forms so there is a fascistic machine or partial machine that's involved in technology and there's also this other it can break sort of either way like a line of flight i suppose yeah. But I guess the ultimate thing is to try to de-essentialize machinery as just a negative or machinisms as just a purely ontologically negative, I suppose. But then again, I mean, if you look at the sort of data of the real world, it's like all these machinic things sort of do is even to go back to the discussions we had with, was it Newman or Chiesa on the point of like every scientific discovery will just uncover more gaps that allow like a religion or a sort of fundamentalism to persist. There's always going to be this this horizon just beyond the reach of our of our knowledge. This is what Guattari, for example, he'll when he looks at the intensive symbolic, which is a part of the A signifying, he sees certain transformations of assemblages veering towards a fascistic slope with, for example, the way in which certain mysticisms can coalesce with fascism right yeah yeah not all of them or just in general but they can yeah certain certainly. certain mystical elements can help to foment and multiply fascistic investments i mean there's... the nazis were definitely involved in the occult and weird shit too exactly but i mean that's i think that's just part of why it's so important to be able to analyze on a molecular level yeah. fascism in all of its forms rather right. than thinking of it as the historical forms we've seen are the only fascisms right. there can be, and we've defeated them. And as he said, Guattari says, like, there's this weird optimistic naivete that's like fascism hasn't made it or won't make it again. It's, like, right. it's already made it. It's, it's constantly making it. It's always there at work. And if we, we think the molar forms are, are the ones that we have to worry about, and they can be, and we have in the past century... But I think that that's why he's like, no, microfascisms are here to stay. They're going to be proliferating parasitically off all kinds of components, be yeah, they mystical yeah. or rational. Because you can imagine a hyper-rational yeah, oh, for sure. fascism just yeah. as much as a mystical one. Exactly, yeah. Even Probably. in the same Good point. form without, without contradiction. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, we sort of have that in the U.S., right? Like it's this weird assemblage between the sort of Christo-fascists and the techno the technocracy or techno capital or whatever right yeah at the end of the day mm -hmm. they sort of i don't know there's certainly not a there's a little bit of a heterogeneous element but like at the end of the day they're sort of simpatico yeah the, the best thing that we see some of the the most heartening things that we see is that for example i'm thinking of the protests and counter protests at charlottesville obviously which led to some mayhem and, and death but what you saw there was a heterogeneity of different kind of alt-right fascist movements, many of which couldn't agree on very much at all. And we can talk about all the sort of infighting on the left or even among Democrats if we want to get molar about it. But there is just as much infighting on the right. And there's, there's hope that 
that that infighting will increase. Now, on the other hand, with with a lot of the recent movements, there there are, I mean, with a lot of the recent decisions and lawmaking and policymaking, those are the things that kind of crystallize and, and help to build solidarity among fascisms, among these movements. So even if they could disagree on certain points about where the enemy is coming from, they can coalesce on those victories and uh, yeah, no, I and, agree. And, and and unite in common cause. That's obviously part of the crystallization of desire and and microfascism that Guattari is worried about. And that's even though he doesn't say it explicitly, that's that's obviously one of the dynamics. Is what are the factors? What are, how do we analyze the factors and the and the the different events that can catalyze and solder the different those different yeah. threads into that's my fear yeah my fear is this sort of quote-unquote victory relative to reproductive rights just is a sort of rallying cry like it's a rallying point like oh we can we can go much further you know almost like hitler taking the rhineland or the sudetenland you know it's like oh the sudetenland yeah maybe you could even say i don't know this doesn't work as well but like putin right he's taking the opportunity to territorialize re-territorialize there's an opportunistic element there it bolsters Russian nationalism, which is not to say that the Russian people are uh, are homogeneous and right. not all of them know behind behind them, but it but it can catalyze a again and, it's a whole and edipal- re-energize a whole yeah edipalization like we discussed earlier with the nationalism you know the sort of nation yeah and which goes back to that point I was making about you know there's not a lot of distinction or like evolution socially speaking between us and the Egyptians in the sense of we're producing all this surplus waste value etc for this sort of immortality through the despot there's a symbolic element i wanted to get back to one thing you said about machines just to stick with this before we move on no please what's interesting about uh, in machine and structure is the way in which Guattari talks about the voice as a speech machine yes yes which i thought well, let me let me see if i can find that just to just to show that it's a again it's it's the tightrope right See, the quote about the voice here that I thought was interesting was that the voice is first and then its application, so to speak, is secondary. The voice as speech machine is the basis and determinant of the structural order of language and not the other way around. The individual in his bodiliness accepts the consequences of the interaction of signifying chains of all kinds which cut across and tear them apart. The human being is caught where the machine and structure meet. And just to remind the listener, the way that Guattari is thinking machine here is based on the very first page of Difference of Repetition, where Guattari, quoting Deleuze, says, this is the footnote that's very important. To adopt the category suggested by Gilles Deleuze, structure in the sense in which I'm using it here will relate to the generality characterized by a position of exchange or substitution of particularities, whereas the machine would relate to the order of repetition, quote, as a conduct and as a point of view concerning non-exchangeable and non-substitutable singularities. And I think that this is where the voice as speech machine determines the structural order of language, not the other way around. Yeah. yeah. So he's trying to say, uh, he even says it in a better way, or maybe even a, a different way by saying, and trying to see the other way around and trying to see structure as first or determine yeah, Like Lacan, for example. Yeah. Starting the from the, of the signifier. Yeah. Starting from the general, one would be deluding oneself with the idea that it is possible to base oneself on some structural space that existed before the breakthrough by the machine. The pure basic signifying chain, a kind of lost Eden of desire, 
the good old days before mechanization might then be seen as a meta-language, an absolute reference point that one could always produce in place of any chance event or specific indication. I picked up on this too because of meta-language and our discussion with Chiesa. Yeah. And so Watery is kind of wanting us to be wary of thinking that structure comes first and then the machine comes in, whether it be through some sort of historical process or through some sort of, which is how Marx is thinking of it because he is specifically thinking of capital. He's of technical machines. There's nothing wrong with Marx's analyses. It's just the way that Guattari is trying to think of machine here in the sense of non-substitutable singularities in the sense in which Deleuze thinks of clothed repetition in the sense in which Peggy, he's quoted, he's thinking of Peggy when Peggy's like, Bastille Day doesn't sort of represent the storming of the Bastille. It's not substituted for it. And it doesn't even repeat it one, two, three times. It takes the storming of the Bastille as an event to the nth repetition. It's this for all time, so to speak, that Deleuze is, is thinking of. this. So it's becoming virtual? Is that Deleuze's definition of virtual is different from the way that I think about it. But. I think it takes the event of the storming of the Bastille and in the celebration of it, the celebration of it itself isn't intensifying the actual states of affairs, that wouldn't make any sense, right? There's no way to reproduce those. Right. Yeah. Okay. It is taking that event to the nth degree, right? So to speak. So, so yeah, it is in a sense, repeating the virtual rather than the actual, which again, wouldn't make sense. And I think that that's part of where, yeah, even though Deleuze doesn't talk about actual and and virtual here, we could think of the uh, structure as more on the side of the actual. Oh, okay. As the actual. Okay. Interesting. Right? Because structure would be sort of the conditions of possibility for reproducing. It would have well, to so, do with states of affairs. Let me back up. What would voice be in this? Would voice be the, or the voice rather, the voice I would think, be the actual and the meaning or representation is the virtual? No, I think it's the other way around, right? Because meaning and representation would be dominant signifying realities. They would be representability, et cetera. So the voice as speaking machine. Maybe I'm getting hung up on the voice being the a real material product and the meanings yeah. being virtual or not real in the hard sense, I guess. Okay. It comes down to here distinguishing between the structural dimensions of language, which are kind of this totality and the interventions of the machine of the speaking machine, which are not bound up by that totality or kind of detotalized totality, as, as Guattari would say. Obviously, the, the virtual actual thing we can say for another discussion, and I think sure. we'll come back to it as, yeah. as always. Right. But I do think that it's what's important to note is that if we think structure comes first, we'll never get machines. Kind of like Nail said, if, we, if immobility comes first, things can never get moving. Yeah. Well, I agree there, but I just maybe I have a funky understanding of because what i was taking is like the voice is primary the structure develops from the real from the actual that the voice as differentiator in terms of the machine the machinic aspect of differentiation would be first whereas the structure as generality or particularity which is completely opposed to non-substitutable singularity i think that's the point here that maybe why the actual virtual is yeah is a little bit hard to parse in this reading it would take a, us yeah. to get into well, Deleuze and and i think that the point being 
It might be uh, contamination in my thought of the way that Baudrillard looks at this relative to simulacra, which is opposed yes, to yes. Deleuze. I think yes. that's the key in this, my kind of, I take the Baudrillardian look at it, I guess, more so. Yeah, just because of, I think of familiarity, perhaps. Yeah, I think in that sense, it becomes interesting to think of, God, there was this part in the machine and structure where I was thinking about Baudrillard. Because structure has to be created from voice. If we're going to, if we're getting at the myth of the given, the voice yeah. comes first and then we generate structure. Right. We generate That's- the virtual from the real. Or we abstract the virtual from the real, actual, physical. I see it as the, by locating the machine and its, and its efficacy with events, mm-hmm. I see the machine as the eruption of the virtual. Because it's, yeah, yeah, the virtual okay. has, to deal, has to deal with differentiation. Whereas the structure would would merely be the differentiated, right? It'd be like the product. It would be, in a sense, kind of more like dead labor, as we were talking about it. It would be a crystallization rather than the sort of genetic conditions of differentiation. I do think that the, the part of it is, as you're saying, this emphasis on, on Baudrillard or Deleuze. I did think this was interesting about like the sensual... But this is what I was kind of getting at as far as my like discussion of dead labor. This road is rather dissection through the division of labor, which gradually transforms the workers' operations into more and more mechanical ones so that at a certain point, a mechanism can step into their places. Thus, the specific mode of working here appears directly as becoming transferred from the worker to capital in the form of the machine and his own labor capacity devalued thereby. Hence, the workers struggle against machinery. What was the living workers' activity becomes the activity of the machine. Thus, the appropriation of labor by capital confronts the worker in a coarsely sensuous form. Capital absorbs labor into itself as though its body were by love possessed. Yeah, quoting that phrasing quoting, fucked me up. <laughs> qu- quoting quoting Faust, right? I think that's what. It, yeah, oh, interesting. Quoting. Uh, I did not quote, know that. Quoting quoting Faust. I would make a Faustian bargain for musical ability i think that part of the faustian bargain can go back to what we were talking about with the enlightenment i mean faust is kind of the story of the enlightenment there is a way in which the bargain is for unlimited knowledge but the bargain on the other side the devil is obviously is obviously capital this is why deliz and guadri talk about the scientists and the technician is sort of sort of being the first recruits uh, uh, yeah yeah this is the point that i was that i was thinking of so this is the the back and forth. This is part of the dialectic of we could say optimism and 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 pessimism uh, to be broad. Where Marx says, and it's it's almost it's kind of subtle because there is a, there is a lot going on in this quote unquote fragment. This part of the Grünrisse. He says the quantitative extent and the effectiveness intensity to which capital is developed as fixed capital indicate the general degree to which capital is developed as capital as power over living labor and to which it has conquered the production process as such, which we just kind of went over. Also in the sense that it expresses the accumulation of objectified productive forces and likewise of objectified labor. However, while capital gives itself its adequate form as use value within the production process, only in the form of machinery and other material manifestations of fixed capital, such as railways, etc., to which we shall return later. This in no way means that the, this use value machinery as such is capital 
or that its existence as machinery is identical with the existence with its existence as capital. Any more than gold would cease to have use value as gold if it were no longer money. Okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't get that. Especially that gold, the money tie-in. Just a little bit more. Machinery does not lose its use value as soon as it ceases to be capital. While machinery is the most appropriate form of the use value of fixed capital, it does not at all follow that therefore subsumption under the social relation of capital is the most appropriate and ultimate social relation of production for the application of machinery. Now, this is, and I'll I'll go back to the gold analogy in a second. This, though, is one of the last things we talked about with Chiesa. This kind of loses me a little bit, just as a note. Well, I think this gets back to what Chiesa mentioned in in the end of our discussion, where he mm-hmm. says that there is this kind of there is this kind of monstrous yet contingent copulation between scientists and capital that nothing within the essence of science determines beforehand. It's completely contingent. And I think this is what Marx is talking about with machinery too. That machinery, in and of itself, in its essence, if you want to say, doesn't have to be thought of under the social relation of capital. That is a kind of um, deception, a structural deception, as Guattari would say. It's only because of the historical contingency under which machinery has has traveled due to, due to the fact that it is sort of in this monstrous copulation in the production of surplus value that we see machinery as somehow seemingly tied to value creation. Okay. Right to the, to the production of value, but I think hmm. for Marx, he's trying to say that doesn't have to be the case. I think he's I think he's intimating that in a communist society doesn't necessarily mean we have to get rid of all machines. The, Which makes the, sense. The social relation would be different, right. and okay. and thereby machinery would no longer be considered fixed capital. It could be freed for other uses. Okay, just hmm. as the development of free time for individuals. So this is why he's saying, look, if gold, we could just say like, if gold stops being treated as money, which we've seen more and more, it doesn't mean it loses its use value, right? Yeah, because right. you still make jewelry out of right. it. Or, De- desire can have any sort of object, right? Right. And we don't have a gold standard anymore, but gold is still, obviously it's still treated as a commodity and you can invest in it, whatever, but you can also make stuff with it. I think that's the use value primarily. It's still desired and that's right sense. it has no essence it has no predetermined transcendental transcendental es- essence and i guess that's ultimately the thing i don't know the way that i think about i can't get over this picture of see i see the bourgeoisie or the capitalist class as appropriating the the dead labor of humanity via capital via technical machines in their numerous forms so they accrue power through through dead labor Owning the means of production, yeah, right. They leverage they leverage dead labor against us, guns, bullets, you know, all the sort of whatever, even the ideological or whatever propaganda structure too. You know, it's like all of this dead labor is being utilized to sort of against us. Versus, like at the beginning, let's let's say before capitalism, you can't leverage those machines against the social. It can't crystallize, or it can't. It's not as robust. As it is now, right? Because the state has access to machines that we simply don't, right? The state persists because of the dead labor, like it's the dead labor of history is what we're up against, right? The state has, I don't know if you, what you want to call that. Well, it, 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 it functions in coordination with different monopolies. 
that it not only boosts and gives tax cut to, but privileges and, and allows and siphons off surpluses. It allows for that the system to, to perpetuate itself and thereby is able to, you know, tap into those to the machinery and the, the monopoly and get some of that for itself and, and wield in that perpetuation. Maybe the main point I was trying to say is like the historical development of technology seems to be like it's on the side of the state and preserving these things. Like well, if you're looking at history, like it's not, yeah, there's, you know, I guess theoretically these lines of flight are available, but it doesn't seem like that's borne itself out very well in reality. Yeah. yeah and I think this is why Guattari mentions in, in passing the notion of war machine, which becomes much more central to, to a thousand plateaus and that the war machine is, if not initially, then in part, in practice, in essence, it's extraneous to the state. But the state right. is able to capture and mobilize its war machines. And I think that that's part of the dialectic that Marx is saying that machines forever and for all time don't essentially have to be tied to wealth creation, not in the capitalist mode. It can yeah. be diverted eventually to the creation of for the social good, right? The right. real yeah. wealth, as he calls it. Right. On one no. side, yeah. On the other side, it's like the more technology advances, the more they can really like they can sort of codify everything, enables the coding to become to propel itself into even more and deeply into the social. Yes. And I think that this gets back and something like maybe let me give you the example of iPhone, right? So like in a sense, what is the iPhone doing? It's decoding a certain like it's freeing up commerce it's freeing up exchange to occur at a faster pace certainly there like we said you know it can connect people it can connect you and i but it seems like on the opposite side like this the ability to codify by technology seems a lot more robust than its ability to sort of deterritorialize and open up lines of flight for us though it's not either or it seems like the deck is a bit stacked in capital's favor or the state's favor yeah i think that's that's the part of the contradiction of machine and structure right that's part of the contradiction of because it makes it harder it's almost impossible to become imperceptible now because of technology right we've got cameras everywhere phones everywhere it's like tracking devices your data totally codified. yeah exactly it's like we live in the really in the digital panopticon par excellence you know how do you resist the state whenever the state sort of sees everything they know everything capital knows everything now they data mine are you know they like our likes our sexual everything is codified yeah i think this is why this is the double-edged sword of machines obviously machines alone will not save us but they do ramp up the conditions of possibility for for edger cope might call it like becoming gorilla you know maybe maybe sterner might talk about in terms of insurrection you know, I think that it's it's for Guattari becoming revolutionary, the revolutionary machine. This is why it needs an analytic machine. This is why analysis is still important to come full circle. You know, we we've focused mo- mainly on the political or the Marxist communist militant side of Guattari, but this is why Guattari ends the ends the essay by saying the revolutionary program as the machine for institutional subversion should demonstrate proper subjective potential and at every stage of the struggle should make sure that it is fortified against any attempt to structuralize that potential and essentialize it. 
but no such permanent grass machine effects upon the structure could really be achieved on the basis of only one theoretical practice. It presupposes the development of a specific analytical praxis at every level of organization of the struggle. Such a prospect would in turn make it possible to locate the responsibility of those who are in any way in a position genuinely to utter theoretical discourse at the point at which it imprints the class struggle at the very center of unconscious desire. And I think that that is key. Machines alone won't save us. And as you're saying, more and more, the deck seems stacked against us, which is why I think for Guattari and analytical praxis that can help to push this stamping of the class struggle in the collective unconscious, in the machinic unconscious, at the very heart of desire. I think that's that for Guattari is why the revolutionary machine can't function without the analytic machine, can't function without this institutional analysis, right? This institutional machine that's going to be able to consistently develop means by which that subversive element is not lost or not overcoded or structuralized, as he says here. Maybe that's a good place to, to wrap up. Yeah, I think so. So on that note, I suppose we can wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious character. The whole state of things, Violence without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.